On this episode, we discuss The Call of the Wild. Oh! Wipe out. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flop House. I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. I'm Elliot Kalen, and who's this special guest we've got with us this week? Mm-hmm. It's the boss, not Bruce Springsteen, but Jesse Thorne. <laughs> <laughs> I always, that's how I like to enter any podcast, as a mild disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I set you up and I knock you down. Here it is. The boss straight from E Street in Asbury Park, New Jersey. It's Jesse Thorne. Little Stevie Van Zandt. <laughs> Think about how bummed Bruce Springsteen would be if he agreed to do our podcast and then found out we were talking about movies and not just like blue collar stuff. Yeah, old trucks and things. The same thing that Stephen King would be upset about if he was a guest yeah. on the podcast. Here's He's the question. a regular on, do you guys not listen to a Guitar Tone cast? He's a regular no. on that one. He Not is. That, I mean, that makes sense. He's in that like uh, that. What is it? The remainders. The, the I don't know that that uh, the rock bottom remainders. Yeah. Band. Did you yeah. know that I know the founder? I I knew she she's passed away sadly, but I knew the founder of the rock bottom remainders literary rock band. Uh, no. I didn't know that. Should she I update the boss. personal wiki I have for you on my computer? <laughs> I have had. I have had all of one job in radio, not counting the like three weeks that I was an intern on a morning radio show before I realized I could not get up that early. Uh Um, And And you and the Mad Dog just never got along. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You you weren't wild (laughs) enough for the zoo crew. Yeah. I was literally not allowed to make eye contact with the hosts of the show. (laughs) That was one of the rules, really. Oh, no. But on this other wonderful show I worked on called West Coast Live, uh, which was a public radio show out of San Francisco, my boss, Kathy Goldmark, was the founder of that band. Like she had had every publishing job ever before she became producer of this radio show. And so she was just buddies with uh, Dave Barry, Amy Tan, uh-huh. Matt Groening, uh-huh. uh, Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. um, all these people. And they would just come by. They would just come by the radio show and, and to see their rock and roll friend, Kathy Goldmark. It's <laughs> really That's nice. Great. Do you guys That's think that a... Bruce Springsteen ever watched Who's the Boss on TV and was like, when are they going to invite me on that show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. right here. Yeah, but he keeps Just looking ask. in the mirror and he's like, am I the boss? <laughs> yeah, there's the time he actually went to set and was standing outside the door just waiting for a cue that never came. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe they're, maybe I'm supposed to go there. Maybe I'm supposed yeah. to int- yeah. start the idea up. Dan, the scenario you described is just about sad enough to be the subject of a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he already he did write one song about sitting in the movie theater with a single tear rolling down his cheek as he watched mm-hmm. Boss Baby and thought about how he hadn't been invited <laughs> yeah. to be in it. Well, that that his childhood, he never really got to feel as carefree as a baby, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so for the uh, possible new listener who's uh, uh-huh. listening right now saying, what the fuck is this show about? Being like, uh, I love Bullseye, interviews with relevant and sophisticated <laughs> cultural arts figures. So yeah. I followed Jesse Thorne to here, but what is this with these morons? 
What do they? Uh, yeah. What Dan? What do they, What do we do? That they yeah. should know about. Well, these real dinguses uh, watch a bad movie and then talk about it, or you know, a movie that has been either commercially or critically drubbed. Um, and this week, as the uh, announcement at the top said, we watched The Call of the Wild, based on the book The Call of the Wild by Jack London. Hello, hello, it's me, Jack London. He was the a famous American oh, hey, Englishman. There is hello. <laughs> oh, no, the no. ripper struck at the end. In me, Jack London. Mm-hmm. Yep. This whole thing was a setup for Elliot's signature character. Mm-hmm. Jack London. I'm so glad we have Jesse here because Jesse is, of course, the second native favorite son of Northern California after Jack London. Jack London, of course, <laughs> being Northern California's favorite native son and Jesse being the second favorite. So what? It, what you knew Jack London, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were good friends back in the 1890s. <laughs> in the prospect, how would you rank the native children of uh, Northern California? You'd say Jack London number one, number two Jesse Thorne, of course, because mm-hmm. I'm the host of the the least popular NPR program, Bullseye. Uh, then number but three, as, if you're asking me, if you're asking me, the least favorite is wait, wait, don't tell me because I hate it so much. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I guess I don't hate it. Yeah, then Joe DiMaggio would be no, number three. Well, you can hate it. I hate it. Joe DiMaggio nice would be so Joe DiMaggio would be number three, number four and five tied the Olsen twins because Full House was set mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I did have that one San Francisco shot. Mm-hmm. Yep. N- number six is the idea of uneven terrain. Very sure. popular in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number seven would be Johnny Pixar, you know, uh, founder <laughs> sure. of Pixar up in Emeryville, Northern California. Yeah. Now, I, I actually would like to spend uh, just a second on the, the book, Call of the Wild, up at the, the Call of the Wild, up at the mm-hmm. top. Uh, I read that, of course, uh, in middle school or early high school. I think it was an assignment. Um, rather than something I was reading for myself. Uh, what's your guys' experience with the book, if any? I, I have the classics illustrated uh, mm-hmm. Call of the Wild or The Call of the Wild. And uh, I was uh, I remember being a big fan, although I remembered very little of the, the plot points. So this movie was all new to me, you know? I just got some late-breaking news that uh, there's been a change in the uh, favorite Sons and daughters of uh, Northern California. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, Mary Kate is number four. Number five is Boots Riley, and number six is David Diggs, and seven is Ashley. So the Olsen oh, twins wow. have. Wow. I don't know how one was chosen over the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm not from Northern California. I'll have to ask my wife, who is a native of that area. Now, do you think bad they news can survive for you, this? the Lonely Island? But as for Call of the Wild, it's one of those books that I kind of. I think I must have read like an abridged version of it when I was very little, and I never read the full book, and I've always been curious about it since, for whatever reason, the Jack London book I know best is The Scarlet Plague, the book about a virus that kills all of San Francisco, and not any of his better-known books. Huh. I uh, I bought a copy at a thrift store thinking I would bring it up to my cabin and maybe my one of my kids would want to read it at some point, and I ended up picking it up at the cabin and, and reading it with my daughter and uh i had never read it as a kid and it totally rules <laughs> it is so cool and badass and fun and like thrilling it is definitely too brutal for kids uh-huh. and i don't know why it's a children's book yeah, there's like my... a dog fight in it like a well, for reals dog well, I was, fight i was talking to my my wife about this she's a children's librarian and she was we were talking about how there's a lot of books that because they are old 
and maybe they have an animal in them, they become children's books when they were never intended to be juvenile literature. And the same way that, like, I think most people read, like, it doesn't have animals in it necessarily, but most people read, like, Hemingway or Fitzgerald in high school and then never again. So it's like, oh, yeah, that's kids' books. But, like, it's well, not. It never was. Yeah. Like, Jack London well, was not a kid's author. The Call of the Wild was written for the pulps. Um, and, yeah. The thing about the, the book, though, I, that I kind of wanted to bring up was just that a lot of the incidents in the book are actually in the movie. The uh, They are softened. Like, changes are made to make it uh, much softer. And the tone overall is much softer than the book by far because they are trying to make this a kid's film, basically. But, uh, but it's weird. Yeah. Like, a lot of the plot's still there. Yeah, and yeah, and they kept all the raps from the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> when Kangaroo Jack showed up. Yeah, yeah, when Kangaroo Jack London showed up, was like, "I'm gonna write this movie, good day." Well, here's a story about a dog, and he lives down in a smelly bog. No, and they're like, no. "That's not what it's about." Jack. Jesse's <laughs> right here, famed rap aficionado Jesse Thorne, uh-huh. and you are just butchering. okay. So yeah, sorry, he's, yeah. He's, he's he's currently transcribing Elliot's lyrics into <laughs> rapgenius.com. Yeah. So Jesse, yeah. what kind of rapping did Jack London do? I apologize. <laughs> I, uh, like, there is so much intense brutality in the book, both dog, like, it is the story of a dog becoming wild, right? Mm -hmm. Like, leaving the trappings of civilization behind and triumphing through pure ferality. And um, it is very strange. And there is, like, brutality of the dog and by the dog and to the dog, all of them. And, uh, like, it is very odd to think that someone sat down and said, like, okay, how can I help seven-year-olds watch this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about, let's talk about the specifics of the movie then, guys. Should we yeah. dive in? All right. Let's so do it. Here's, it's a shocking movie. The first shock, the logo. It's 20th Century Studios. Huh? That's the 20th Century Fox fanfare, and yet it doesn't say Fox in the logo. This is the first movie I think I've seen come out from that studio since Disney bought it, and it was bizarre to me to see that to see it not say Fox, it just said Studios. It was weird. Then Branding-wise, Elliot, I would say the most interesting part of that to me was that when they sat down to decide what to do with the 20th Century Fox name, they decided we want to keep the 20th century part. Mm-hmm, yep, because it's <laughs> and relevant. drop the part that everyone knows. Well, it's weird because it's literally... Like, like keep a, the part that's wrong, drop the part everyone knows. It's literally like 100 years ago that 20th Century Studios and Fox Studios merged to become 20th Century Fox. And it is weird that they have now separated out again. It's, you know, a divorce after a marriage of almost 100 years. Sad, really, uh-huh. when it happens. But the children uh, will be... Kept away and never shown in repertory theaters again. Thanks, Disney. So we start with a voiceover from old man Harrison Ford. He tells us it's the Alaska gold rush of the 1890s. They need big, strong dogs to pull sleds. Luckily, uh-huh. we're about to meet a big, strong dog. His name's Buck. And how would you describe the CGI used to uh, create this dog? I would call it off-putting. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I don't know. I probably just got Stockholm Syndrome over the course of the movie. Like As the movie wore on, it did not bother me at all that much uh at the beginning like audrey at one point asked me she's like this isn't all cgi is it I'm like are you kidding me like <laughs> this is definitely all cgi yeah the but, part where buck is smoking a cigar and driving a taxi mm-hmm. cab yeah <laughs> now this, this it, i i read about the director so the director's background is in animation he yeah 
co-created and co-directed Lilo and Stitch and How to Train Your Dragon. Stitch was his idea. Lilo was the other guy's idea. (laughs) And um, he, I read him describing this as like, they wanted to, they did like, they had an actor in a mocap suit and they did scans of a real dog. And then they kind of animated him up a little bit because Mm -hmm. the dog is really the protagonist, right? Like in the book and in the story, the dog, it's about the dog. The, the owners are incidental and only the fact that it's, that they happen to have gotten uh, uh, Harrison Ford to be one of them, you know, makes it so that that is two thirds of the movie. Um, But like, it's about the dog. And he said he made him more animated E uh, like, you know, a little more exaggerated or hyper real in order uh-huh. to address the fact that they would have to animate him or else because they needed more acting than a regular dog could do. I mean, and, it makes sense because dogs are notoriously hard to read emotionally. Yeah. Uh, dogs are, if there's ever an animal that is just a stone sphinx, just a, yeah. just total, a total mystery yeah. and enigma and is I mean, dogs. I mean, if there's, and if you're making a movie, if there's one animal that there is an extreme shortage of trained versions of. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, well, there's, this dog does do a lot of acting and also is put in danger that you would never want to, to do to a real dog. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, and so. The, the, I, I had a similar feeling to you, Dan, where at, when I first saw him, I was like, whoa, what is this cartoon yeah. dog doing here? But as the movie <laughs> would go on, I'd, and again, maybe this was partly because I was doing the dishes while I was watching it. I kind of forgot he was a CGI dog until there were moments when he would be very CGI. And I would be like, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that's not a real dog. <laughs> right at the beginning, there are some like, ain't I a stinker moments for the dog? Yeah. yeah. And you're like, wait, is this dog going to tear a man's throat out later? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. At the beginning, uh, the dog's a real uh, Marmaduke. You he's know, a real uh, Beethoven. Yeah. He's yeah, like, stop leaving uh, chains of linked sausages lying around for this guy to grab and run around with. <laughs> he's a, he lives in Santa Clara, California with Judge Bradley Whitford. And uh-huh. he's, yeah, he's a real Beethoven, a Marmaduke. He does whatever he wants. He licks big blocks of ice in the street. He ruins big picnic banquets until... Everybody loves him, though. Everybody, Everybody loves knows him. his name. They also know that you can't mess with him because he's the judge's dog. And if you mess with his dog, you're going to get you're gonna get murdered, I guess. I don't, yeah. I don't know what Yeah, the, thrown in jail. The judge judges time. do. And yeah. Bradley yeah. Whitford... He's a, uh, he looks like a hanging judge. Bradley, mm-hmm. Bradley Whitford is one of the... Uh, a few times in this movie where I'm like... You got like a name actor for this role. Like he uh, exists just to sort of like look disappointed at the dog in the beginning and leave him outside the house. This this should have been. I mean, he does. He also deserves bigger roles. But to me, I was like, mm, this should have been a Brad Dorif role. They got the wrong Brad. They got Whitford yeah. when they should have gotten Dorif. Okay, so one night though, Buck's idyllic life as the bad boy of Santa Clara is interrupted when he is kidnapped. He's taken and away by some bad men, and when he comes to, there's a mean man with a club who teaches him the law of club and fang, that in the world outside, idyllic Judge Brad's house, it's only violence that is the master. And Buck is like, oh, I'm afraid of this club. I don't like getting hit by it. Yeah. And he tries to escape, but he's on a boat to the Yukon. Jesse, you mentioned Lonely Island before. Mention him again, because Buck's <laughs> on a boat. <laughs> hey, they recorded a song called We're on a Boat. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they recorded that. a song called uh, The Call of the Wild, right? Yeah, sure. Oh, did they? Yeah, Dan, can you sing a couple bars? 
It's the call of the wild. Da, 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 yep. da, da, Etc. Exactly. I'm pretty handsome for a funny guy. <laughs> yeah. I have a slightly exaggerated mouth size. Wow. wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're edging into anti-Semitism, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> and now, okay, so they get to land. Buck slips his leash for a moment and has kind of a meet cute with a Gandalf-bearded Harrison Ford when uh-huh. Harrison Ford drops his harmonica and Buck returns it to him. But... They don't get to spend too much time together because Buck is soon sold to Perot, a Quebecois mail carrier, and his wife, Francoise. I didn't. It's uh, you can just say partner. partner. I think it's okay, fair. partner, an Inuit woman that is also on this uh, mail carrying mission with him. Uh, Buck joins the sl- the sled team of CGI dogs, who are led by the uh-huh. mean Spitz, a bully dog who rules by fear. What do you guys think and about Spitz? Spitz is probably German. I remember when I was uh, <laughs> when I read the. Uh, when I read the the illustrated version, I was always like, "Man, that Spitz guy—he seems pretty cool." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things oh, go yes. real well for that Spitz McKenzie. But uh, <laughs> I do like one of the one of the advantages of doing all cartoon dogs in this movie is that you can make the sled dog team all unique looking dogs. They don't all look the same. Uh, having having been to Skagway, which was very exciting to see Skagway depicted on the silver screen of my apartment. Uh, it was. I've also uh, I've also met teams of sled dogs, and they all kind of look alike. I mean, they're all good yeah. boys, obviously, but uh, I half expected like one of the dogs to be an, like an English bulldog. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how how deep into the production they were still considering like fuck. Maybe we should just give them all. Let's just have all the dogs talk. Yeah, like, I, you know there was a look, discussion at some point. Should we have the dogs talk, and how how radical and how much bad attitude should they have? Yeah, it did like, look weird to have. Uh, uh, I've already forgotten the main dog's name. Buck. Uh, Buck. Buck. It seems to me like uh, it was weird to see a Buck at the head of this uh, thing for the reason Stuart talked about. Like, it's not like there were just like a bunch of huskies, you know, as you might think, or something like that, but. Uh, and they also didn't look that big and strong, despite what the opening of the movie suggested was needed in the Yukon. Yeah, that's the, that was the surprises. I think they were going visually just to help you set the dogs apart, but they really didn't seem like they, it, it seemed like matter. this was this was the ragtag kind of like uh, what Hoosiers of the uh, of the uh, or Mighty Ducks of the sled dog team. It was going to take a real charismatic guy to make them run fast, and we've met that guy, and his name is Buck. Unfortunately, at first, Buck is a terrible sled dog. He almost leads them off a mountain at one point, it seems. Uh, (laughs) But he has visions of a primordial wolf spirit, which inspires him to work hard and be tough. Guys, your thoughts about the wolf spirit? uh, I didn't have thoughts about the wolf spirit, but I did want to say that like, part of this whole thing, uh, this process of him becoming a better sled dog is um, the sled uh, the, the mail carrier's unwavering faith in Buck as, uh, you know, like he's going to be the greatest dog of all time kind of feel. And also he's like constantly talking to the dog and encouraging the dog in a way that makes it seem like everyone in the movie expects the dog to understand human language. There's a scene where the guy like shows, literally shows all of the dogs a map. And he's like, we're going to go here. Dan, have you met dog owners? <laughs> uh, that's true. They yeah, do no, call uh, they do call Jesse, that out in the movie. There's a there's a scene where uh, there's a scene where the lady of that team um, says like you know that they don't speak English right, and he keeps talking to them. But it is yeah. like it speaks to the fundamental challenge of making a movie out of 
uh, out of this book, which is this is a book about like lonely people with no one to talk to. Uh, and with a protagonist <laughs> yeah. that cannot speak, and so you really have to figure out how are we gonna uh, how are we gonna make clear even what's happening without internal monologue. What you just described, Jesse, sounds like the Jim Jarmusch version of Call of the Wild, just like a series <laughs> of lonely people and a mute dog narrator who just kind of roams between them. Uh, the now, the just- answer they choose is, by the way, is to have Harrison Ford break in intermittently for no particular reason before and after his character is introduced while his character is on screen and not on screen with voiceover narration. I think it's a, the, the way, the rationalization, it's a good way to justify Harrison Ford being on the poster. Because yeah. if you're kind <laughs> now, of hearing him even in the scenes he's not in. Now, when, you know, when you decide to go live off in the wild by yourself, who would you want to narrate the story of your life leading up to that point? Do you think Harrison Ford, do you think Harry Ford would be uh, your first choice? Uh, I want to quickly say that I think Harrison Ford does a really good job in this movie. Like, I think the rap on later period, Harrison wow, Ford. Wow, are you is... hoping to get him as a guest or something? What's going on? Over <laughs> I would here? love that. He's my nostalgic <laughs> pick for my favorite actor, even though he's often very uh, sort of lazy about it. But here he seems to be actually caring about the material, which well, I, here, I like. I think the weariness that he shows in his other roles, which usually comes off as a like, I can't believe I'm fucking doing this, really works for this character who is, who has a world and soul weariness that he has to overcome and, and does overcome. But I would say probably Emo Phillips. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be perfect. <laughs> or yeah. an Emo Phillips type, like a French Stewart, maybe? Go a, no, go not at all. No, thank you. If, if we can't get Emo, one, I'll be surprised. And two, <laughs> I don't want a FOMO. To come in and pretend to be uh-huh. emo. No, thank you. I mean, <laughs> who am I emo kidding? works, Elliot. You, you like you got to pay. You got to do better than scale. I think to get. Oh no, him no, to no. We'd make it life. worth his while. We'd make it worth his while. But okay. like, I I want him to do it. But at this, it's not like he's not going to be like, well, give me ten million dollars, or I don't get out of bed. You know. That's... Yeah, but he gets good money for his for his weekend at Go Bananas in Cincinnati. Like, he's, <laughs> he's, 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 he's amazing because he's, he's an amazing performer. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's great. He that rules. was when Elliot decided to go off. <laughs> the grid mm-hmm. that's oh it, I, I would love it to your point dan like i went into this movie with the thought where i was kind of wondering whether harrison ford was even good at acting wow. like i really like harrison ford as a movie star but i thought i was trying to think back to different harrison ford movies and thinking like did he do anything or does he just have some quality to him and i agree completely i thought harrison ford was fantastic in this movie he did more than he usually does and brought and carried it off very well, which and felt completely grounded talking to a CGI dog, which is yeah. Yeah. like a I mean, very can, weird and awkward place to be as an actor. And he, I, I thought he did beautifully. And I, I mean, thought his I've, voice sounded beautiful in the narration. Yeah. I, th- yeah. I also yeah. think he was really great. I think when dealing with Buck, he was drawing on his years working with a man in a bear suit in the Star Wars <laughs> movies. Uh, like he's used to having a furry companion who can't be understood, but I'm, look, I'm going to, I'm going to have a spoiler and say, and say my, my summary is partly colored by my having really enjoyed this movie. And when mm-hmm. I saw the trailers for it, I was like, why did they make this movie? Who did they make an adaptation of call of the wild for? And then I realized I was like, Oh, dads, that's who this movie is for. Yep. This is like what I would call a kid's movie for dads where I was like, Oh, I would get so much more out of this than my son would, but I would make him watch this with me like that. Well, this, this is a kid's like movie for dads. Completely reshot and re-edited with input from uh, what's his name? The Ford V Ferrari guy. Oh, oh James Mangold. Mangold. Yeah. He was, he gets a producer credit on the movie. And I read that he like led them through a second round of shooting 
to like refocus the movie on Harrison Ford and make sure that it was uh, a live action film and not an animated film and so on and so forth. Oh, that makes sense. That is James Mangold, right? Who did yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so lo- this would be a lovely double feature with Ad Astra or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the ultimate dad, dad movies. Movie. The ult- <laughs> uh, So <laughs> the so uh, like I said, he sees that wolf spirit, and he learns to be hard and tough. And he's also, and here's the difference: he's generous to the other dogs. He shares yeah. his food. He's nice to them. Spitz hates that, but yeah. the other dogs love it. And Buck I'm is really now. Glad they make. I really glad they make an effort to make uh, Buck sympathetic because it's really tough when a dog character is introduced for uh, the audience to side with them. <laughs> it's maybe the most instant reaction that any audience in the world has is the minute a dog enters the movie, everyone is like, that's my favorite yep. character in the if movie. Anything, if anything I mean, bad happens to that dog, I'm going to kill a human being. <laughs> Stuart, Stuart uh, I think you may be you may be discounting the extent to which audiences hate a stinker. That's, that's true. <laughs> that's true. As as shown by the fact that Bugs Bunny, a noticeable stinker, has not yeah. had like a real major effort until these new cartoons, Nature of Max, whereas Mickey Mouse, perhaps the most unstinker there ever was, is <laughs> is a huge merchandising sensation. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in the in the book, Elliot, this black wolf in the movie is is the titular call of the wild, right? Like it is an ineffable pull yes. on the dog's soul that it feels and is like confused by, frankly, like worried and confused by uh, as it is drawn further and further from the world of man, right? And uh, in the movie, what they decided to do was to put a wolf on a hill. Uh-huh. It looks like uh, it looks like the cover of the Nettens Madrigal now, album by Woodward. I mean, I have to say, I that's think exactly it's good... what I thought, Stuart. I said to myself, yeah, yeah. this looks exactly like the cover of the Nettens Madrigal album by Woodward. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say I, I would rather that than have them do like they did in Frozen Two, where it's literally just a voice that comes out of nowhere for no reason and exactly. starts beckoning no Elsa wild. into the give woods. Me, give me a spirit. The wild. Yeah, I'd rather mm-hmm. have woods. Uh, yeah, rather that rather than uh, something going. <laughs> in the woods and being like huh? Huh? I I would do I would go one step further and make it uh, a little bit more like Lynchian and in the snow there would be like an end table with an old timey telephone that would be ringing <laughs> sure, yeah. that would be the call of the wild <laughs> and then, and then a guy... actually had a the... cut of this movie before James Mangold got invited and um, <laughs> it had the narration from Harrison Ford but the call of the wild wasn't a wolf on a hill it was emo Phillips <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Again, works. Totally works for me. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I love the idea now of a David Lynch version, Stuart, where the soundtrack is just like, as they're in a sled race. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Buck is now part of the pack and he loves it. Buck is everyone's favorite. He even wins over Francoise when she falls into icy water and almost drowns and he saves her. And that night, a jealous spits, knowing that he is no longer the MVP, most valuable pack member, attacks Buck and he keeps knocking him down with these jump bites. Stuart, as yeah. a fighting expert, how would you how would you rate Spitz's fighting style, which is entirely jump based? Well, I mean, he's all fucking rush down, right? And you're like, dude, as soon as Buck figures out your fucking like one twos, he's he's gonna he's gonna destroy you because all he doesn't even block; he's just all attack. And of course, that's what Buck does. He fig- he gets he gets a reversal on him, 
picks him up in the air. He, he catches him out of midair and lifts him up. And Spitz has a moment where he's like, oh, fuck. He, now he's about to ground combo me. And of course he does. Yeah, exactly what happens. Buck is hurt, but the wolf spirit comes over and is like, get the fuck up and fuck up that dog. And Buck does it. And he just to- makes Spitz submit. It's, yeah. it's wanders off in shame, never to well, be seen again. That's what happens in the book, right? There is like <laughs> that's what the that's what the Call of the Wild says. I mean, in the book, in the book he kills him. Yeah. yeah. Whereas here, there's uh, some of that dog acting we were talking about, where they give each other a look, where he's like, "Huh, you gonna stay down?" And the other guy's like, "All right, okay, cool." And 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 Spitz is wandering off and looks back sadly, as if to say, "I was a king once," and then uh-huh. just wanders into the <laughs> void. I had my own <laughs> hole in the ice to drink water from. Mm-hmm. And this harmonica picking up jerk. the main way they express how that he's the boss <laughs> is that he has a hole in the ice that he won't let anyone share. Now, there's uh-huh. something in this. There's something in this movie that is something. I, I mean, I like this movie again, and I like the story. But there's something I don't like in it, which is I will call it the uh, Tarzan fallacy, which is uh-huh. Buck is kind of like a pampered rich man's dog, but when he goes into the wild. He is the superior of everybody, and he immediately – or not immediately, but through hard work, but he is recognized as special, and he rises through the ranks over dogs that are more experienced and more wild yeah. than him. And it's the same way that Tarzan, who is an English baron who is lost as a baby, becomes king of the apes even though why, – why should he be king of the apes? There's like a, there's like a hidden sort of uh, – uh, not – racial in this case because they're dogs but this hierarchy of like a civilized person is still better than a non-civilized person in a way that made me uncomfortable as the movie went on when buck is reinvigorating the wolf pack with his genes uh in a way that makes them the uber dogs and i was like later on and i was like uh i don't know if i like the message of this movie anymore. Yeah, yeah i guess that that part is true i i, I did i was gonna make an argument that like the highest good that the movie presents is being wild, but then, like, yeah, he does make some sort of super race by mingling with the wolf. <laughs> which, which totally fits into the background of the kind of uh, 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 kind of racial genetics of the late 19th, early 20th century. But anyway, the important thing is the next morning, Buck insists on being the lead dog in the sled now that Spitz isn't, Spitz isn't there and the other dogs back him up. And Buck's, Buck starts pulling them so fast that Perot, the mail delivery guy, is like, yes, this is amazing, and his cheers cause an avalanche. Are they going to be killed? No, because the wolf spirit shows up and is like, hey, Buck, there's a shortcut through an ice cave right here, which was <laughs> weird because it's not like that's information Buck knew that was coming. Like Now it's just like there's a ghost of a wolf that's following it's him and telling him. Yeah, memory, yeah. Elliot. And that's the thing, like, Every Genetic time memory I'm... of mail delivery route, Stan? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I always, every time I'm playing Mario Kart, I wish a fucking ghost spirit would show up and show me where the shortcuts are so I stop looking like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you're probably wondering, just to let everybody know, when I play Mario Kart, I always play Wario. No one else, only Wario. What? Yeah. Now, exactly. Who are you looking like a fool to in this scenario, Stuart? That's... Toad... Uh, Yoshi, the princess, that's, that's yeah, the one that okay. hurts the most. Okay. Sure. <laughs> the the uh, dry bones. Uh, now, you, now <laughs> these sled bills. dogs, they were advertised back then as the car. original Mario Kart. <laughs> uh, so, But the, for the first time ever, thanks to Buck's super fast leading, they actually deliver the mail on time. And people, this is what, Skagway? Is this where they are now? I think yeah. so. And we they know, deliver it in a shower of letters, right? We yes, know this pe- is consequential because earlier in the film... Uh, Francois or whatever his name is, Jean-Luc Picard says, uh, he goes like, I Perot. want to try, a uh, Perot, he says, I want to try and deliver the mail on time, but I never have. <laughs> yeah, and then he takes a big bite out of a baguette. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, is he, weird because again he, he is Quebecois. And not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not French. Well, French. they well, consider themselves more French than Canadian. He rolls yeah. out a giant scroll that has all of his life's goals written on it, and that's the only one that isn't crossed off. Every other oh. one has been crossed off. Yeah, yeah. Have sex in the rain. That was which crossed is, off. <laughs> Run a marathon. Why, which is why in the scene, now that he has done it, he walks off into the forest. He never walks off into the void. Well, the second closest thing. Anyway, people love the mail they get. Perot's like, we don't just carry mail. We carry lives. And this was, to be honest, the Valentine to the Postal Service that I needed right now. Yeah. Uh, the, there is that hidden critique of the mail is never on time in this movie. And I don't know what he means by on schedule since it's like, I don't know, it's the 1890s and you're in Alaska <laughs> with a dog sled. How, how tough are they with the deadlines? I don't know. But uh, Buck even shows he's got a little heart by delaying the next day's mail delivery until Harrison Ford can give them the letter he wrote to his wife about his grief over their dead son. More on that later. But when they get to the next place, the mail route has been terminated. Probably mm-hmm. the president trying to fix the election, I've got to assume. Yep. Uh, they're just pulling mailboxes out of the Yukon. The dog team is sold to these snooty dilettante gold seekers played by Dan Stevens and Karen Gillan. That's right, everybody. It's the Legion Nebula team up we were all waiting for. <laughs> well, and, this is, and Dan Stevens is, uh, he's putting out some serious war, uh, Waluigi energy here. And it also, it feels a little bit like he's like, I need to tarnish my goody goody image by beating up dogs. And, uh, <laughs> he is like very he is, much the bad guy. He is a real Waluigi. Yeah. Yeah. He's deliciously villainous. He has a villain's mustache to go with his attitude. But also, Karen Gillan is one of the other like larger names that I'm like, what? What? Like, she shows up in like two scenes to be like, maybe we should listen to Harrison Ford. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, she doesn't ha- I, I have to say, like Jesse was saying, I wouldn't be surprised me if there was a heavy edit done uh what i would call a three i call it a thin red line where the editing process removes whole storylines and even actors and things like that honestly i thought i thought karen gillen did a great job but i would have liked to have seen uh comedian natasha leggero take this one on yes like (laughs) a lady in a victorian dress relaxing on a dog sled sipping a bellini or whatever (laughs) is exactly what natasha would have kicked butt at Yeah, yeah yeah that's a fair it's fair although we wouldn't have gotten the MCU 20th Century X-Men Star Wars crossover that we get when Harrison Ford uh-huh. tells them, uh, you don't know what you're doing, you're going to kill all those dogs. Excuse but they don't me, listen. Elliot, this is a PBS crossover between Doctor Who and <laughs> Downton Abbey. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, there's got to be, someone's got to have written a, Down, a Downton Abbey Doctor Who crossover story, right? Yeah, they'd be fucking... Yeah. What's- <laughs> I, I don't think you know that much about the doctor. He's he's kind of a he's, he doesn't really do a lot of that. But yeah, but maybe he watches Elliot. I yeah. mean, I don't know what he's into. He's got a lot there of must be some, How how great would a crossover be where it's Tom Baker's doctor and Maggie Smith from Downton Abbey? She's his new companion, and they're just traveling time and space. This like snooty, very sarcastic, rich old lady, and the craziest man who was ever on television in any way, shape, or form with a long scarf. What a great story. Someone write it. Send it to me. I'm not going to write it. I don't have time. I've got two children. Okay, anyway. These rich jerks, they're treating the dogs terribly. Harrison Ford tracks them down, and he frees Buck. But Dan Stevens takes the rest of the dogs away at gunpoint, and you know they're all doomed. You just know yeah. it. There's no, there's no way they're going to survive. Yeah, including including uh, all the other humans that are on the sled. They're doomed, too. Yeah, they're all doomed. <laughs> they never uh, and, show back up. And they leave knowing that they're doomed. Uh, Ford takes Buck back home, and... He goes to a bar, and Dan Stevens attacks Ford at a bar, saying everybody fell through the ice and died. He blames Harrison Ford for it because he Mm -hmm. can't own up to his own mistakes. But who's there to save Harrison Ford? It's Buck. That's right. Mm -hmm. He knows where his his bread is buttered with the nice man, with the harmonica. 
Now, guys, I'm looking at fanfiction.net right now, and uh-huh, there yeah. are 22 Good. stories that are Doctor Who and Downton Abbey crossovers. Great. Uh-huh. Uh, including such titles as The Housekeeper's Tale, um, The Madman and the Rebel. Wait, is that mm-hmm. T-A-L-E or T-A-I-L? That's a good oh, question. I, I didn't see. We got Vera and the Dalek. Just uh, guess, Dan. Guess which stars. one it was. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so you know, God bless you out there. Keep keep it up. Okay, now look and see if there's any crossovers between Back to the Future and the Monster Serial Universe. You know, Count Chocula, Frank and Barry. <laughs> this is is this your way to keep me uh, shut up, Elliot? No, like... just to, I I I really like when you show the initiative to do research, and I want to uh, I want to gratify that and keep it going. I want to encourage it. Uh, Buck, he knows that Harrison Ford is drinking too much. He takes uh, Harrison Ford's whiskey bottle and buries it in the snow and sits on it, what I'm calling a dog intervention. And Harrison Ford explains to him, oh, I had a son and he died of fever. He always dreamed of exploring the unmapped areas of the Yukon. Hey, Buck, uh, you and me could go off and do that together. And they do. And they're canoeing through the rapids and they get caught in rapids. And I was like, oh, no, something bad's going to happen. No, the boat just springs a leak. And Harrison Ford goes, I guess that's the end of that boat. And they just keep walking. There's a part where Harrison Ford has to explain to Buck what a boat is. He's like, it's a boat. We're going to ride on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Harrison Ford lets Buck share his tent. They're having an idyllic time. And they have something between a father-son relationship, a man-dog relationship, and kind of like two people who have just fallen in love and just can't get enough of each other and just want to – can't. they just don't never want to be apart. Uh, Yeah. There was a part later on where uh, Harrison Ford was talking to Buck about how, you know, he and his wife just drifted apart after their son's death. And I uh-huh. did expect him to end it with, and now you're my wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, but even before that, we had a sort of arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> my grieving wife and I have an understanding. Uh there's a moment where they're out in the wilderness and it's beautiful there, and Ford tells Buck, Your ancestors used to roam here and mine. Back when we were wild. And I was like, your ancestors, Harrison Ford? <laughs> yeah, yeah in sure Santa Clarita, that, California, where they shot this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Where they I mean, obviously guess... shot this movie. If we go back to the cradle of civilization, maybe? I don't yeah, know. maybe. maybe. There's, a lot of, there's a lot of scenes where characters like go outside and it's snowy, but they're like, there's no breeze and it doesn't actually look that cold. It's that kind of a, it's that kind of a cold winter spot, yeah. right? Yeah, the, yeah. Inter- the, the- there are many scenes of transportation. There are many like long montages of them uh, cruising the dog, the dog sleigh through the, you know, through the Alaskan wilderness uh-huh. that really look like they were they look like they were painted by the the painter of light thomas kincaid mm-hmm. uh, yeah like if yeah, you told master. if A you told master. him like uh take this still photograph we took of a hill in santa clarita and really northern lights it up um uh-huh. that's pretty much what like there is no there None of the movie outside of Harrison Ford's face looks like something you could actually touch. Yeah, well, I was. I, I, I mean, assume even then, the, even then, you're going to need. The, a, sorry, what did you say, Stuart? I was just going to talk about how I assumed I was going to see uh, the crowd from the pod racing scenes of Star Wars behind every corner, but you know, it's not that important. <laughs> no, no, I just wanted to warn our audience. Even then, you're going to want to get Harrison Ford's permission before you touch his face. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Consent uh, is important. 
But it is, it does feel like there is a version of this movie. I'm sure they've made multiple versions of this movie over the years. I've never seen the 30s one, which apparently this one takes some elements from. But there's a, I guarantee you there's some version of this movie that was shot in the 60s where they really went to Alaska and they really had real dogs and everybody hated making it. And, but I kind of wanted a little bit of that in this. Like it it doesn't have a, it loses a sense of reality that I would have liked to have seen. Or either that or I would have liked them to go all the way and just make this an animated movie. Like, there's no reason this couldn't be, like, a regular 2D Disney hand-drawn animated movie. And then yeah. you get some songs. Maybe the dogs talk a little bit. Like, you, you go as Josh far as... Josh Gad having, gets a paycheck. Yeah, Josh Gad is, like, the goofy dog from the sleds. Like, hey, Buck, hey, hey you know, we gotta, you know, hey, you know. Let's, well, what, mean, what's going on? Oh, that's Spitz. And Spitz is what, like, it can't be Jeremy Irons again. Spitz would be like cut, Willem Dafoe, Cut to a I stack guess. of screenplays on Elliot's desk, all of which just <laughs> over and over say, Josh Gad, colon, hey, you know, hey, hey, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, this is a thing that uh, we talked about when we, when we were watching it here, that, like, if, the, like, they could take this basic exact screenplay and exact tone, and if yeah, if Disney had made it like sometime around like Beauty and the Beast or something, everyone would be like, "This is great!" You know, it's it it really it feels like it should be that. I the wonder thing, if they if they pitched originally as a, as an animated movie, and they said, "Guys, Balto exists." The animated Alaskan sled dog movie is <laughs> taken. We can't. We're do never it again. gonna erase Balto in <laughs> people's minds and hearts. Yeah, and they're like, of- well, why don't we just? Buy up all the prints and DVDs of Balto and pretend it never existed. You know, like we did with Can't like we cost did with more Sh- than five bucks. Like we did with Shazam, the Sinbad genie movie that did exist, but we erased it from the permanent record forever. Yeah. But Jesse, that, you were gonna say the thing that's a little bit of a bummer about the middle ground that they chose in how they present the film to me is there are a lot of things in the movie that work. You know, we talked about Harrison Ford. He's wonderful. Like, I would just watch Harrison Ford and his elderly man, uh, giant ears and nose, uh, (laughs) big David Letterman beard. Like, I would love to watch that. totally ripped body. I know. He's swimming and he comes up and I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, he's in great shape. All that dude does is puff J's and do pull-ups. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, like, there's a lot of great things about it. But, like, thematically... I think it is really poorly served by not having something you can sink your teeth into. And that was probably not the uh, turn of phrase I should have used because it sounds mm-hmm. like I'm doing a, a pun here. But like, no, the, no, you're, you're the modern day Gene Shalit. Just go run with it. The fact that there's no the fact that there's no grit in the movie and there really is almost no grit in the movie other than Harrison yes. Ford's face. Yeah. Is not just a bummer because I like a, to watch a gritty movie or whatever. You know, like the the screenwriter of this also wrote Logan, which I I'm going to alienate sixty percent of the listeners, but I thought stunk, but and was very gritty. But like, uh, but there's something about the theme that is served by grittiness, right? Like the story is yeah. him descending into animalistic brutality, right? And like that. And that these human beings are drawn into it by their greed uh, outside of Harrison Ford's character. And uh, they like destroy each other and that he has to that Buck has to learn to live freely within this new set of more brutal and terrifying, but ultimately more satisfying rules as an animal. Right. Rather than as a rather than as a, 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 
a false human, you know, in, yeah. the, in yeah, the judge's yeah. household, right? And like yeah. none of that means anything. Like none of the, him getting hurt and sick and being under threat and being beaten into submission by a club, like none of that means anything in the context of a movie for seven-year-olds. So either make it just like sweet and pretty, which mm-hmm. you could do, or yeah. or give it something. That was that was the bummer part to me about like the the painted on northern lights in every scene. It's mm-hmm. like I just want to see one thing go wrong. And I actually watched um what's that called uh Benji. I watched Benji not that long ago. Like maybe like 9 uh-huh. 9 months and it is boring and homemade. Like this is original Benji. It is the <laughs> yeah. most 1978 independent <laughs> film you could ever watch. But I think that quality of having an actual dog on screen where where it does the wrong thing a lot draws you in in a way that having yeah. this perfect but slightly hazy because they're not quite good enough at the CGI dog uh-huh. on screen does. I think that's I think that's true and also there is a I did get a sense from it that like yeah, for a movie that is about a civilized dog being forced into primordial savagery to survive everything comes a little easily to buck like he never ha- he it's like oh he's working real hard but he's not really pushing himself to work hard like he everything is kind of dealt with uh, when a problem comes up it's kind of dealt with right away and he feels yeah. consistent in a way like it almost feels like he is ennobling his surroundings rather than being drawn into them and being transformed which i think like in some ways the book is sort of like a it is almost a satire of the idea of like uh, of of a character learning and growing, right? Because he is yeah. receding into his essential nature rather than expanding and becoming fancier and clever, cleverer. And in the movie, it feels like he's kind of a he's kind of a very friendly, handsome, big guy who goes into all these different situations and is like, uh, "Hey, guys." Let's do it my way. Uh, I'll make two holes in the ice for you to drink water yeah. from. And everybody's like, yeah, you are the best. So let's just and say it's... it. Buck is, in this movie, Buck is the Ferris Bueller of dogs. Yeah. I mean, everyone loves I mean... him. He never has to try very hard. He gets whatever he wants. <laughs> and for, uh, I mean, this movie lifts, uh, like, the trajectory and plot points directly from the the recent, uh, the first Planet of the Apes movie from the recent batch. Uh, and Buck is very much like a Caesar type character and he ends up like leading a bunch of wolves. And there's even a moment where he like catches a, a stick in his mouth instead of getting hit. And I remember being like, when I saw that Planet of the Apes movie, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, beat him up, Caesar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this, it, you know, it had it didn't have that emotional impact. No, because he's already he's already triumphed over everything all the yeah. time. Uh, so Buck and Ford, they find an old prospector's cabin. They decide to stay a little bit, especially when Harrison Ford finds some gold nuggets in the river while skinny dipping. This is when we see his hot dad bod, better mm-hmm. than dad bod even. This is a, this is like, yeah. I mean, he is, is he a dad? I don't know. Anyway. Hey, hey Elliot, uh, how could you tell like... those were gold nuggets that he found? Was it because, <laughs> because they were like, they were, they like, were like gold, yippee, yahee, hoo-hoo. Like, they were like highly polished, like refined. Yeah. Like it truly looked like he found something that had been like spray painted high gloss gold <laughs> seven times. I mean, I'll mm-hmm. give, I'll let the movie get away with that. That's, you know. In that case somebody than him... wondered if it was brass that he found or whatever. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, some, yeah, a, a trumpet got shattered in the cold, and the pieces are just in the water. Uh, they keep it was like he's like, gold. I found diamonds, and he like lifts an engagement ring out of the river was basically what it was like. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're panning for gold. Diamond. And again, they're panning for gold and getting nuggets, which is, yeah. if I'm going to go with Jesse, that's not how panning for gold works. You get dust when you pan for gold. But I like the, the uh, idea that at the beginning of his pan for gold, he couldn't see the like two and a half inch diameter nuggets <laughs> that were in yeah. his one inch of water. <laughs> and uh, Buck catches the eye of a sexy lady wolf, but she runs away when he tries to meet with her. Uh, but he wins over the wolf pack when, hey, guess what? He saves a wolf from drowning in the river. That's what Buck does. He saves people from drowning. Give, show us something different that Buck does. Uh, now, Neptune all, hates him. <laughs> the, the wolves all have these reaction shots like, okay, okay. Like, it, like, I like it's pretty, this guy. it's almost. You're almost at the point of a wolf wearing sunglasses and like lowering the sunglasses to look <laughs> yeah. over them at Buck. Uh, now Bucky runs with the wolves. Harrison Ford is like, you know what? I've been cleansed of this experience and this adventure. I should go home. He says goodbye, but before he can leave, who's going to return? It's Dan Stevens. That's right, the guest. But he's no guest this time. He's an invader. <laughs> no. He shoots Harrison Ford, and he threatens and how, Buck. How, how bummed were you guys that Dan Stevens didn't show up with fucking spits with him, right? Shouldn't they have shown up together? <laughs> that, I mean, Come that would have been the more Hollywood way to do it. Yeah, if it's all of Buck's enemies are now, are now banded together. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then Spitz has like a monologue, like a Richard the Third monologue, where he's like, cast out and ignored. Now I shall have my day. Well, you'd have mm-hmm. the part where Dan Stevens is like, I meant to have my whole family die in the ice. It was all part of my plan. You fell right into my fingers. Uh, mm-hmm. He threatens Buck with a club, that hated club, but Buck fights back. He's not afraid anymore after cringing for maybe like a millisecond. Uh, he shoves Dan Stevens into a burning cabin to die horribly. <laughs> yeah, uh, Viking funeral. Yeah, and uh, Harrison Ford uh, dies in Buck's paws after uh, a touching goodbye. And now, uh, with his voiceover from Beyond the Grave, he explains that Buck has started a new pack. He's had babies with a sexy lady wolf. Uh, they even stare down a bear together. And uh-huh. the VO it's tells us— It's a very, us, like, like, last unicorn Red Bull moment. Yeah, yeah, because he just chugs that Red Bull down. And then and uh-huh. the bear is like, I don't want anything, any part of this. That's <laughs> just like this, this, this dude's wild. And, and uh, the VO tells us how after going from master to master, now Buck is his own master. He As he followed some— primordial urge from the wilderness and then title the call of the wild as if the title was trying to prompt harrison ford about what phrase he was supposed to end the movie on uh and that's the end of the movie yeah Yeah, that that ending is an example of a phenomenon throughout the film which is like every 15 minutes or so there's just a brief scene where someone says out loud what's like what's happening and what the themes are uh and each one of those things, like some some of them seem to have been part of the like added in voiceover parts. Some of them are scenes that that are between uh, Harrison Ford and Buck, where Harrison Ford explains the themes in Buck's life to Buck, like a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was and they all have this goofy grandiloquence um, that is so unearned, so profoundly unearned. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it feels uh, Alan, very much like a dad has sat me down and he's telling me a story and I'm like, dude, I know what you're I know what you're getting at. Just because yeah. you're saying it slowly doesn't mean it's important. <laughs> uh, and where would you rank this in the Harrison Ford voiceover pantheon? Better or worse than the Blade Runner studio cut voiceover? I like both versions I mean, of Blade Runner. Call me crazy. I, I enjoy them mm, all. I'm on record mm, by preferring the version with the voiceover, so... 
I mean, I I know that he's not doing much in that, but I mean, I still feel like that feels appropriate to the character. So what in Blade Runner? Yeah, I, not have, I like, mean, well, in Blade Runner, it also does the necessary thing of explaining to you what's happening in this in this movie that where the scenes make no sense and don't go together. Uh, yeah. I you know, but okay, so I th- let's call it a draw then. Call the wild Harrison Ford, Blade Runner Harrison Ford equals. Uh-huh. Equal uh, in esteem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's uh, let's do our final judgments. Whether this was a good bad movie, a bad bad movie, or a movie we kind of liked, guys. If I was like twenty years old, say, I don't think I'd like this movie. But if I was seven, I would like this movie. And now at forty, I also like this movie. <laughs> and I think, you know, like seven, it might have been just like lower standards and like seeing a cute dog having adventures uh and now a lot of it is uh, ironically since one of the problems with this movie as a call of the wild adaptation is its lack of brutality what i enjoy about it is it's kind of a throwback to a gentler slower style of family film that maybe i'm just nostalgic for i don't know but I think that, you know, Harrison Ford does a great job. I'm glad that they didn't really Hollywood up the plot points all that much, even though, you know, they did somewhat. Uh, and, you know, I, I, th- I thought it was fun. I, I, when Harrison Ford was about to get shot, I could see that this was going to be the scene where it happened, where Dan Stevens was going to show up. And I was, like, gripping Audrey's, like... Uh, leg Audrey who had lost interest long ago but I was like no no Dan Stevens is gonna shoot Harrison Ford and so the movie got me yeah I I actually liked it a lot I think I would have had the same trajectory as you Dan that as a kid I would have liked it as a young man I would have been like ugh, this middle brow gentle adaptation of a of a book I don't need it but now it's a movie that goes down real smooth it and like <laughs> especially for a kid's movie it's what you can say call the wild may not really be the best material for a kid's movie but also for a kid's movie i don't need something that is super gritty and raw or anything like that and certainly as someone who is also not a fan of logan like i don't need the i don't need the logan version of this where buck is like cursing and like ripping people's heads off and stuff like that this is it there was something about this movie just being a movie where i could be like I'm watching it, and I'm finding this pleasant. And by the end of it, oh, you know, I feel good about Buck. You know, digging into (laughs) it, into some of the, like like I was saying, some of the um, cultural uh, subtext of it. That's not a great idea. Don't do that, because you're going to be unhappy with it, maybe. But as a viewing experience, when I finished watching it, I was like, oh, this is the rare Flophouse movie where I wish I had watched this with my son, because I think he probably would have enjoyed it. Some of the dog stuff might have been a little scary for him, but that's just him and dogs, you know. Maybe that would any movie with a dog, he he might have felt that way about. Uh, although he did watch Oliver and Company recently, and that's mm-hmm. a movie with dogs in it, and he liked mm-hmm. that. Uh, but yeah, what about ne- All Dogs Go to Heaven? He's never. I've actually never seen that. I've only ever seen little bits of it, and they're only the hell bits, and it's kept yeah. me mm-hmm. from wanting to ever watch that movie because I don't need well, to see dogs going to hell. Also, Elliot, Sammy liked uh, Oliver and Company mostly because it was an adaptation of Oliver Twist, which, of course, he is his favorite novel. Well, that was the second reason. His favorite, the reason I liked it most is because he's such a big Billy Joel fan. Oh, okay. He's like, finally, my two favorite things, Disney movies and the Bard of Long Island. They're in one mm-hmm. place, finally. Uh, but yeah, I actually liked this movie quite a bit. Okay, guys, Stuart, Jesse, tell me why I'm wrong. Oh, I don't know. I mean, 
I'm going to say, I actually think this is a bad, bad movie. Um, oh, but I don't, wow. like, I'm not, I ain't mad at it. It just, like, <laughs> there's there's so little there. Uh, it feels, it feels very, re- like, rewritten. Uh, it's not going to stick in my brain. I don't know. And, and there's, I mean, there's no grit at all. Like, I don't need it to be, like, fucking Cormac McCarthy or anything. But, uh... <laughs> But like, I don't know, like it would it it would have felt nice. It would have been nice if it felt like any of these characters were anywhere other than a soundstage or in a nice part of California. Yeah, yeah I, that's true. I have watched a lot of really terrible children's movies and almost exclusively like my, my I have three children, the oldest of whom just turned nine. And my media diet has really dwindled to like uh, one comforting half hour television program at the end of the day before I fall asleep and movies I have to watch for work uh, and for my NPR show, which are tend to be, you know, fancy indie movies, first cow or something. And I have no complaints about that part of my life. That's great uh, that I get to do that for work. And then kids movies that often, unlike Elliot, I haven't been able to trick my children into watching kids movies that I want to watch very often. Um, so Elliot is just hanging out watching Marx Brothers movies and the adventures of Robin Hood and stuff. And like, the I tried Adventures of Robin Hood was a big hit, big yeah. hit with Sammy. I tried to get, yeah. I tried to get my kids to watch, uh, I tried to get my kids to watch, uh, singing in the rain and failed. Um, oh, another, fa- another favorite in the family. The two year old yeah. loves it. It's a hoot. Yeah. Uh, but I couldn't get him, I couldn't get him to go for it. So I've seen a lot of like, uh, I've seen a lot of just boring, lame ass kids movies. And this movie is definitely better than those. It like you know, I, it's a two star movie. It's not a total failure. Harrison Ford is wonderful. It's a I like watching dogs, but I do, <laughs> I do yeah, think it's a bad fair. bad movie. Like even it, it is ultimately betwixt and between. Like they should have made a choice. Either we're going to make a beautiful children's movie uh, that's very sweet, or we're going to make a movie with a little bit of zip to it. It doesn't have any zip to it other than Harrison Ford's face, as I mentioned. Um, And it isn't very beautiful. Like, it really does, as Stuart say, everything looks like somebody just just used a stock animation for Northern Lights on top of a shot of a a hill in Santa Ana. And you know who I'm going to blame for that? This is going to be, sorry to interrupt, this is going to be controversial. The cinematographer on this is Yanis Kaminsky, and I am totally going to blame him. Because the last 12 years, 15 years of his movies have been kind of that same glossy, very, very post-CGI soft look. And like he he does all of Steven Spielberg's or most of Steven Spielberg's most recent movies and they all have that same kind of like fakey studio look. And I'll say I watched a few of those um, Disney live action reinterpretations of classic Disney cartoon movies. I saw Lady and the Tramp and I saw Beauty and the Beast. And um those If it's got an ampersand, you'll watch it. Yeah. <laughs> those like if also it's two have... things with an and in the middle. Those well, also have uh, ampersandfan.com. <laughs> Fan percent. Those, those also <laughs> have things to recommend them. Like uh Beauty and the Beast has those wonderful songs and the the Harry Potter lady is fantastic in that movie. And Dan Stevens in that one too. Uh, yeah, but the aesthetics of them are such a garbage pile, and I will admit that they are worse. Th- it's the a worse version of the same thing. This kind of like everything looks like a Thomas Kin- Kincaid painting, uh, but uh, like everything has that weird softness to it in order to accommodate the fact that they can't quite make the dog look right. Um, 
and uh so it's hardly the worst but but it's a it's a bad bad movie like if i watch it with my daughter because she wanted to watch it i would have been grateful that it wasn't gar- total garbage uh but mm-hmm. having watched it by myself because <laughs> <laughs> my wife wanted to watch it because my daughter wanted to watch a harry potter movie last night for big kid movie night instead um i was i was bummed that i had wasted that piece, that chunk of my life on it yeah. Mm. yeah. Welcome to the flop house, my friend. <laughs> Welcome to the flop house. It's all about wasting chunks of your life. Mm-hmm. Wow, a real uh, split decision here. So I guess we're gonna have to leave it up to our uh, guest judge, Harrison Ford. Uh, Harrison oh, wow. Ford, what do you think? Is this a movie you kind of like, it's or a bad, bad movie? Bradley Whitford, because he was the judge in the movie. Uh, yeah, that's true. But he's not a judge in real life. Unlike Harrison okay. Ford, who is a judge now on the federal bench. Uh, so, Judge Ford, what do you think? Uh. All right. Well, thanks, Harrison. I guess that's it's noncommittal. <laughs> so it's, I guess we'll just have to live with a split decision on this one. It was a pretty good Harrison Ford growl, I gotta say. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Um, so. Oh, oh, one uh, thing I we, wanted to mention. Actually, this is a bit that I forgot I was gonna do. I, I didn't. Oh, I had for, I had forgotten that Call the Wild. Sorry. Should so, we put in our forgotten bits theme here? <laughs> yeah, that uh, Harrison. No, this is me saying what you guys all were all saved from. That Call the Wild is very similar to the plot of Dune in that it's about an outsider who comes into a more savage wilderness and becomes the leader of a becomes part of a tribe and then the leader of that tribe. And so I was originally going to start doing the plot as Tom Brokaw for those Flophouse fans who love Tom Brokaw describing Dune, but I forgot to. So. Mm. Okay, well, don't do it now. Throw that into Werner Herzog's cave of forgotten bits. (laughs) I mean, it seems like it would take a lot of of setup for that bit. But what kind of Flophouse bit doesn't involve a lot of setup? True. Schmanners. Noun. Definition. Rules of etiquette designed not to judge others, but rather to guide ourselves through everyday social situations. Hello, Internet. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. Every week on Schmanners, we take a look at a topic that has to do with society or manners. We talk about the history of it. We take a look at how it applies to everyday life. And we take some of your questions. And sometimes we do a biography about a really cool person that had an impact on how we view etiquette. So join us every Friday and listen to Schmanners on MaximumFun.org or wherever podcasts are found. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? If you're looking for a new comedy podcast, why not try the Beef and Dairy Network? It won Best Comedy at the British Podcast Awards in 2017 and 2018. Also, I'm... There were no horses in this country until the, the mid to late 60s. Specialist bovine arse vet. Both of his eyes are squid's eyes. Yogurt buffet. She was married to a bacon farmer who saved her life. Farm-raised snow leopard. Download it today. That's the Beef and Dairy Network podcast from MaximumFun.org. Also, maybe start at episode one or, weirdly, episode 36, which for some reason requires no knowledge of the rest of the show. So uh, we've got a couple of sponsors. I would offer for uh, Jesse to not be here for this, but they're pretty. There's just only two, so I'm forcing him to sit around. Uh, Elliot, do you want to take the sponsor for once? Sure, I'll take the sponsor. Today's Flophouse is brought to you by you guessed it, Squarespace. Look. Squarespace is the place for you to go to to create your own website. I've been meaning to do it for a while to create my own website. In the future, we're all going to live on the internet. We're all going to need our own websites. You should get and start. Go out there, start making your own website, and Squarespace makes it so easy. Your website will be beautiful. Let's say you got a cool idea. 
I have cool ideas all the time. They just disappear into the ether because I don't get around to make them into websites. I well, should use Squarespace. Technically, Elliot, yeah. we have seen that pile of screenplays on your desk. Yeah, mm-hmm. most of my cool... Well, I need to make Josh Gad, hey, uh, what? Dot com. Uh, your place for screenplays that involve Josh Gad being like, hey, guy, uh, hey, uh, over here. So I'm going to take that cool idea. I'm going to use Squarespace to make it into a website. I can blog mm-hmm. on there. I can publish my content. I can sell all my products, my Josh Gad, hey, hey, guy, hey, T-shirts and uh, services mm-hmm. if you need me to introduce into put that into sure. your screenplay. does even more. And here's how yeah. Squarespace makes the difference because – They've got their templates. You can customize them. They look great. So your oh, wow. website looks professional. You don't even need to code to do it. World-class mm-hmm. designers designed this website and these templates. This is something Everything- that on Jordan Jesse Go, Elliot, we really like to emphasize. There's a lot of provincial designers out there designing templates. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. if you want world-class designers, I'm not even talking yeah. about mm-hmm. state fair, blue metal, blue ribbon type designers, but no. international Olympics level. These yeah. these designers, they get they, these designs. They work. They work in Senegal. They work mm-hmm. in uh, uh, Milan, Italy. That's uh-huh. in Italy, yeah. the fashion yeah. capital of the world. Name another uh-huh. place where it works. Give me another place. <laughs> Sorry, I'm all out. But the point <laughs> of the story is: Look, when Carmen Sandiego goes somewhere, she knows that her website. Is going to work there because yeah. it was designed uh-huh. by a world class designer. A way yeah, she could go to Milan or wait, wait, <laughs> Senegal. she could go to Senegal. Yeah. It also works in oh. Senegal. Wait, I got... okay, no, just go. I want to say no, just Milan and Senegal. <laughs> oh, that's wrong. <laughs> uh, let's say you want your website to work on a mobile device and also on a computer. It does it right there for you. You don't have to worry about that. Right out of the box, it does it. And uh, you can use it to buy domains. You can choose from over 200 extensions, free and secure hosting. It sounds amazing. I had a website that I want to talk to you guys about. It's called uh, www.primordialspirit.com. Sometimes we have trouble getting in touch with our primordial spirits. Uh, Buck <laughs> was lucky enough that he just wandered by where his lives, the yeah. Yukon. But on I haven't yet fi- I've yet to find mine. And I want to find it. My primordial spirit, I don't even know what it looks like. It probably looks and sounds like Emo Phillips, to be honest. But I want to make sure. Primordialspirit.com matches you with primordial spirits, shows you where they live. Maybe they're in your area. Maybe they're not. Uh, in fact, well, we have one where it's just in your area. That's called uh, Primordial Spirit Friend Finder. And that gets a and little, will, that's just for adults. Elliot, will this primordial spirit help me find all the shortcuts in uh, Mario Kart so I stop looking like a real jerk? <laughs> I can't promise anything, but yes, I promise you that that is the case. Hey, oh, okay. uh, Stuart, and take go, off your I, headphones for a second. Elliot, Dan, okay. I was watching Stuart play Mario Kart the other day, and this guy he, looked yeah. like a real oh, jerk. Tell me about this it. This guy a real looked like fool a, and a real jerk. jerk. You wouldn't Dingus. believe. Yeah. Oh, Stuart's putting his headphones back on. Okay. okay. Uh, hey guys, anyway. okay. What's up? What I'm yeah, no, we, nothing. I was just talking about how with Squarespace, you can finally make the website you deserve. Just go to squarespace.com slash flop for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code flop to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash flop. Now, uh, before we move on, Jesse, I just want to say uh, I appreciate that during the um, thinking of places bit, uh, your restraint. I know that you're famously unwilling to talk about San Francisco, so I <laughs> I appreciate that you held that line firm today. Uh, I want to mention also. So yes, we're recording this the day after we did our live online "The Boy Next Door" screenplay reading with our mm-hmm. good friends of the podcast, Hallie Hagland, Jenny Jaffe, Natalie Walker, and 
Jordan Morris filling at the last minute and really helping us out. And uh, that will be up on our YouTube page in case you missed it at some point in the future. It's, I think uh, it just went up today, now. right? Oh, so. it's there now. Well, then some point in the past when you're listening to this. <laughs> also, I think this uh, comes out uh, like two weeks from now. So, it, what, Is the uh, YouTube link going to expire? No, Did no, we no, not no, do no, it just, yesterday? Is YouTube uh, going to shut down? Yeah. All, right, all so your I'll favorite my- creators are going to be out of work, Dan. <laughs> yeah. If we sound tired, it's because uh, with the intro, outro, and uh, just the fact that our reading takes longer than a a movie, I think it was a two-hour and 40-minute marathon getting through that script, but I had a blast. I really had fun doing it, and people seemed to enjoy it. I had a really great time, but right now, Dan, I don't think anybody has to... uh, explain why they sound tired. Oh, that's yeah. true. I feel like that's everyone just... sounds tired right that's now. That's the condition right now. I would yeah. add to that, Stuart, I don't think Dan needs to explain why he sounds tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> between my tendencies towards depression and sleep apnea, I, uh, you know, uh, speaking of everything going on in the world, I woke up this morning thinking like, hey, why the hell do my neck and shoulders feel so fucking bad right now uh-huh it did you figure be it out i've been carrying stress in them for the past oh, okay. five months yeah um yeah Probably. so that's the only part where we'll reference the outside world uh no and we're gonna reference it one more time because late september my new book sharko and hippo comes out that's right <laughs> it's a kid's book by me with uh an all-new set of characters, Sharko and Hippo. Anyway, uh, the art is by Andrea Surumi, who did a great book called Accident that I love, and Sharko and Hippo is coming out in late September to bookstores near you. Order them through a bookstore and then have it delivered to your door because, you know, of what's happening in the outside now, the, world. Now, this Sharko and this Hippo, are they sort of an Island of Dr. Moreau Marx Brothers duo? or Without the Island of Dr. Moreau part, yes. Okay, great. Um, hey, let's let's uh, let's read some letters from you, the listeners. Uh, yeah, this one it. is from John from Milwaukee. What's that call out there? Mm. Do I hear something coming through the snowy waste? Why it's Perot, the dog sled mailman, bringing the letters back to the flop house. Sometimes our letters come from far away, far away in the frozen north, the Yukon, where letters sometimes go and sometimes come from. That's how mail works. Letters come from and go to the same places sometimes, all the way from Senegal to Milan. But in this case, it's the Yukon, where these letters are coming from. And here comes that dog sled of letters down the track to the flop house. Uh, yeah, it feels thing. weird to be annoyed by those letter songs right now with uh, the way uh, what's going on with the Postal Service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they need all the encouragement they can get. Yeah. With your... I'm trying to yeah. do my part. Yeah, come on. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Elliot. Uh, so this first letter from John says, mm-hmm. my wife and I recently So John, watched... so that's the full name? No last name withheld? Just that's the full name, John? Well, earlier mm-hmm. I said John from Milwaukee, kind of forgetting the bit for a second. But uh, yeah, John, uh, no last problem. name withheld. Okay. Yeah, it's John from writes, Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! <laughs> it writes and says, "Does anyone know what was going on in my show? Because I sure don't." <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, David Milch hasn't responded to any of my texts. <laughs> <laughs> he must be bedridden uh, again. He must be wife... busy dealing with uh, dealing with all of his debts. Anyway, continue. Uh, John says, "My wife and I recently watched Green Room and enjoyed it. But even greater was near the end of the movie the presence of the Dragonlance book, Dragons of Spring Dawning." was on the console of the van. I read the hell out of that series in middle school and bought it for my sixth grader for Christmas. 
What aspect of your real life appearing in a film were you excited to see? Uh, I remember it's not a film, but um, there were a couple of episodes of Mad Men where uh, Don Draper's uh, tumblers, um, I guess they're more like rocks glasses, uh, were this sort of, you know, obviously because of the time period, they were uh, mid-century modern, but also because mid-century modern was big because of Mad Men at that time period. I also had these tumblers, these sort of throwback tumblers with uh, squares etched into the uh sides of the glass so that's the one i remember what about you guys that that's not that far from being like i was really excited to watch gremlins 2 because i had a full set of the gremlins 2 trading cards i bought because of how much i love gremlins 2 (laughs) (laughs) i think you got it Stu. i think you got it it. was i mean i i we had them before we started watching mad men let's just uh, who hasn't i i i I liked them back when they were cool. <laughs> Who hasn't dreamed them? of capturing the depths of sadness uh, reflected in Don Draper's <laughs> compulsive drinking? Uh, well, uh, I don't know. Like I mentioned earlier that I got excited when uh, in the movie The Call of the Wild, they go to Skagway because, uh, what, two years ago, Dan and I and some assorted friends went to Skagway. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really fun. Um other than that, I don't know. Like, uh, I was really excited when I saw the 40-year-old version of the theater and I saw some of the miniatures that uh, Steve Carell's character was painting. And I'm like, oh, wow, I have some of those. Uh, I think I'm going to have to say, anytime I see certain parts of New York specifically that I am well acquainted with in movies, I'm like, hey, I know that place. Uh, a movie that I love, The Landlord, was shot around my old neighborhood in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And there is a... Uh, big Coca-Cola sign on a pizza place that was still standing for most of the time that I lived there. And I was like, oh, wow, that sign's been up there for like 50 years. This is amazing. It was uh, like when you saw a squid in the whale and you're like, oh, I just in that book. Yeah. <laughs> like I've, I, that diorama also reminded me of my parents' divorce when I would go visit it as, as a young man. Uh, but the time, weirdly, that I felt that way the most was there's a very bad movie called Robot in the Family starring mm-hmm. Joe Pantoliano and John Rhys-Davies about... It's like a robot that can find gold. It doesn't make any sense. But uh, a lot of the movie, for whatever reason, was shot around this stretch of antique stores on Broadway between 14th Street and, like, 10th Street in Manhattan. And that was literally the street I walked. Those blocks I walked almost every day as an NYU student from my dorm to the classrooms. So when I watched this movie, I was like, I know that that whole block. This is amazing. And I was like, I could I could have walked through this movie, possibly. <laughs> So I was, could be a robot in the family. It was very exciting, even though the movie itself is terrible. Don't see it. The uh, the the literal version of this for me, a hundred percent, is the movie Sister Act, which was shot like six or eight blocks from my childhood home, and seeing and also Whoopi Goldberg taught you how to sing. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she told me actually that R and B hits of the nineteen sixties were gospel songs. <laughs> uh, which was an unusual attack to t- teaching singing, but you know, um, and uh, I mean, it's like when that professor, I had a music professor named Harold Hill and he taught me that all I had to do to play the trombone was think that I knew how to play the trombone, mm-hmm. which also similarly unusual technique, but yeah, that like seeing the church by my house with fake graffiti on it to make it look more scary and the Irish bakery by my house and so on and so forth. Um, that was like absolutely thrilling when that movie came out when I was 10 or nine or however old I was when that movie came out. And, um, but the more metaphorical version is my stepmother 
when I was uh, in my late teens, um, said she had heard about this new Bill Murray movie that she thought I would really like. And this was like right after like Operation Dumbo Drop or whatever. Um, was that the one that had Bill Murray in it? There was two, la- mm. or was Larger no, Than Life? Uh, larger Than Life. L- larger Than Life, yeah. This was right after Larger Operation Than Life. Operation Dumbo Drop was like, what, Danny Glover? Yeah, maybe Danny so. Glover. I think maybe Dennis Leary was in yeah, it. Yeah, I think I'm Dennis not... Leary was in it. As a, yeah. as and, like a 17-year-old, I, did, I had, did not yet understand, like Bill Murray was two years out of my demographic in terms of how good he was before his career revival. And it turned out to be Rushmore that my stepmother was telling me I should go see and like uh, besides just being insufferable another thing I related to Max Fisher about was that like I was also a poor kid who went to a really fancy private school and fit very awkwardly and also I was the president of a lot of different clubs um and uh this makes a lot of sense, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I actually had auditioned for Rushmore. I went to arts high school and they came and auditioned in their like search, but I didn't even get to say a line that I was too tall. They like, I walked in, they said, sorry, you're too tall. And I walked out. But um, I, I was, the, I think it was the first time that <laughs> I had bread. seen a movie and like really directly related to themes in the character. Um, and it was shocking to me. Like there were, aspirational characters you know like i don't know maybe i thought i would like to be more like i don't know i was gonna say Wee herman but that's probably a bad thing to want to be like <laughs> Pee Wee herman is an asshole uh, the man is not an asshole he's i've met him he's a really nice man the uh the character is an asshole yeah um but like but in terms of like seeing things from my life on film uh in an emotional sense uh directly that was the that was the first time and it's odd to admit that it was rushmore which is obviously a very stylized movie where the protagonist is not always sympathetic but um never sympathetic some might say me in fact well it it depends (laughs) on whether you had almost all of those experiences whether your actual dad was a vietnam veteran who was scarred by his experience there (laughs) yeah uh, this next question is from Lena Last Name Withheld, which is pleasingly alliterative. Uh, it is. I just want to mention something I never knew about Operation uh, Dumbo Drop. Looking it up now, is that it was set during the Vietnam War, which uh, what? Yeah, it's, what? it's a kids' movie that's set during the Vietnam War <laughs> with s- soldiers transporting an elephant through South Vietnam. So, uh, uh-huh. I'm assuming listening to like Leonard Skinner songs and. Yeah, that's when I probably yeah yeah. That's when I first found out that my dad was a vet. I asked him if he had gone through anything like that in the '60s. He said, "Let me tell you mm. uh-huh. about my time on the carrier uh, and that <laughs> giraffe." Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> showed you pictures of his friend who's an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lena writes, "Dear Peaches, I'm writing to you in spite of Dan's advising anyone who intended to write you a letter to, and I quote." go to hell in the last episode because I am in desperate need of your sage wisdom. My younger brother, 18, has recently become obsessed with slasher films. He talks about them constantly, analyzes their themes, gives his opinion on the merits of various sequels, and recommends movies he thinks you'll like. He even wrote a research paper about the gender politics of the genre. The problem is, he hasn't seen any of the movies he proclaims to love. Not one. He watches a lot of, like, 
horror review channels on YouTube, I guess, which is where I think he picked up this interest, but he never seemingly took the initiative to watch any of the movies he was hearing these guys talk about and has just absorbed their taste in these movies into his own personality through osmosis. I can't begin to tell you how aggravating it is to be told how interesting the way the third Halloween movie subverts the formula of the franchise up to that point is by someone who hasn't seen a single fucking Halloween movie and has no idea what the fuck he's talking about and obviously is just parroting someone else's opinion down to the word. My question to you is, how do I get him to cut it out? Calling him out on his ignorance doesn't seem to work, and neither does cutting mockery. Believe me, my parents and I have tried both, but the man is without shame. He's not embarrassed in the slightest by the very silly thing he's doing. It's terrible. Can anything be done? What would you do if it was your little brother? Please advise. He's driving me nuts. Yours and flop. Lean the last name withheld. We're kind of cutting into uh, the McElroy's business here. With this, uh, this is more of an advice letter. But uh, mm-hmm. you're right. We're not allowed movies. to do that. Forget it. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, nice. Lena. Can't do it. It's a zero. No, it's a I like zero this sum turn. game, I like gang. This turn. Flap house up, McElroy's down. (laughs) Everyone's got their (laughs) thing. You can't do anything else. Uh, If they if they ever talk about movies, they uh, they have to stop immediately. I think it seems Mm -hmm. like the best strategy. Like the this might not be the most practical strategy, but it might be the most effective strategy. Is wait until he's not a seventeen year old. Yeah, that (laughs) that was going to be my advice. Uh, Yeah, just. just let him be dumb for a while, and then hopefully he won't be dumb in the future. Because uh, also, I think that if you argue with people too much, because humans uh, are stupid and our brains are broken, uh, often people tend to dig in even more at that point. That's pretty cool. I was going to say, just keep <laughs> sending him little, uh, send him little like gifts of uh, those horror movies. So over time, he'll he'll have to watch all of it, even if he's watching him in short clips. <laughs> Yeah, you're, I mean, that's the, what you're doing with Critters gifts to us, even though we've seen Critters. Yeah, <laughs> Critters, Critters 2, uh, various uh, Japanese animation, yeah. etc. Oh, and Full House. I think the entire series of Full House. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, probably the only the only real thing to do is to just wait it out. Uh, I'm curious why he hasn't watched any of the movies. Yeah, that's I don't think that's the odd. pleasure he probably gets out of it. This is... Not to, uh, you know, not become a therapist or a psychologist all of a sudden. Because, again, that's the McElroy's thing. uh, (laughs) I'm guessing it's more that he gets pleasure out of sounding smart about a topic uh, or, like, figuring something out. Yeah, it's almost like... he doesn't like the topic he's figured out. It's almost like you want to introduce something to him that he, he can be smart about that he also actually likes engaging with the main primary thing at the same Mm -hmm. time. But I definitely, like, when I was younger, I definitely would be very opinionated about things that I had only heard about and not seen because yeah. that's part of being a young man is assuming that you need to have an opinion on everything, knowing that your opinion is based on nothing and then mm-hmm. pushing that opinion harder to try to make up for the fact that deep down, you know that you're a fraud. That's basically what being a young man is all about. Uh, so and, I don't and know. an older man and an older man, a man of all kinds, a man of all seasons is one who is knows that, knows that he is a fraud and cannot be the thing that he thinks he's supposed to be. Yeah, and a so fraud forces that others walks to... on four, four, four legs at birth, <laughs> two legs. Yeah, you know it. Three yeah. legs eventually. That's how it goes, right? Yeah. Three eventually legs eventually. Three. <laughs> three like, legs. yeah, what walks That's on the uh, four is... legs at birth and uh, three legs eventually? It's me, the Sphinx. That's what... <laughs> 
when the Sphinx is when the Sphinx is telling its riddle while trying to answer an email at the same time. <laughs> By the way, Elliot, would you say what would you say is the most Sphinx-like animal? As you claimed earlier on in the show, dogs or perhaps sphinxes? Uh, sp- <laughs> That's well, a good question. Yeah, sphinxes are closer to sphinxes than dogs. Yeah. Uh, in terms of living animals, you got to go with a cat, right? Yeah. Because a cat always has a look on its face like you have just failed to answer a question properly that it has asked yeah, you. Yeah, also and sphinxes have the head stupid. of a cat. So it's those two uh, things. Well, well, they have the body of a cat. Oh, body of a cat, face of, a, head face of, a, person. of a person. The head of a mm-hmm. cat on the body of a person is a fetish. Yeah. Uh, which well, I'm not gonna, I feel like I'm not I feel like deny. if you were to I feel like if you were to tell a sphinx that it had a face like a cat, that would be a severe insult in sphinx culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now then, there's also you got your uh, like Assyrian type characters who are there's sphinxes where it's like a lion's body with wings or an ox's body and then the head of a man with a long beard and those always seem those like are really cool i'm gonna run into them in the real world and i'll think they're gonna say something really smart and instead they just go like because that's yeah. my experience with bison i always yeah, think it's bison like are about to tell something. me something really wise elliot i'm gonna let you keep going in just a second i just wanted to let Stu and dan know what happened is i had to go to the bathroom so i just brought up mythological stuff uh so elliot could do his thing mm. for a while and cover mm-hmm. for us now the interesting uh-huh. thing is the Minotaur. <laughs> no, I, I think traditionally. Now I don't want to. <laughs> so uh, I think another thing that this that Lena can do with her brother is to start uh, introducing things. Uh, is just start talking to him about it. Really engage him on this topic of horror movies, but slip in every now and then something that doesn't exist that you're making up and see <laughs> see like what what and not as like making fun of, but like to see how he reacts to it and what his opinion is suddenly on this thing that doesn't exist. And I yeah. want you to keep seeding it that way until eventually you're having a conversation where both of you are talking about things that don't exist all the time, and you yeah. know it, but he doesn't know it. And I want you to write down his opinions on all of these fake movies and you know send them to us in the future. Yeah, yeah. So we can uh, laugh and laugh at the thing we once were. Uh-huh. Um, pardon me, I burped off mic. Let's go to... Uh, I like that you <laughs> undid it by telling us about it, though. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's bragging that he's drinking bubbly drinks again, huh? <laughs> That's why they call him Seltzer McCoy. <laughs> I'm rich in gas. Uh, let's oh, go look at, to... Look at Jupiter over here, huh? <laughs> yeah, look at Bespin over here. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> Let's go to uh, the final segment in the show, which is to recommend movies. I guess uh, I guess I'll just break up the shale in Dan and get some of that sweet gas out of there. <laughs> recommend movies we saw uh, often recently, but not necessarily that we liked. Um, I will recommend. I saw. I finally got around to the uh, Netflix Will Ferrell movie Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga, which mm-hmm. I had been kind of interested in just because i like goofy comedies and uh your vision is certainly funny on its own um and it's got dan I, stevens in it yeah well that's i was gonna yeah the connection the call of the wild connection is dan stevens and i'll get back to him but um you know i had been kind of will ferrelled out at least in terms of the man child comedies he usually does uh but i found this to be a you know a better application of that a sweeter application of that um like there's a kindness in the worldview of the movie that i kind of wasn't expecting now don't get me wrong uh will ferrell was not the best thing about the movie the best thing by far i think was rachel mcadams um as the equally goofy but somehow simultaneously grounded 
uh, character of the the two leads. Um, I think she's terrifically funny, uh, like almost all of the time, and uh, and she just somehow finds the way to act a totally weird character. And Dan Stevens is in it as. Stuart says, uh, as the person who would normally be the villain of this type of movie, but I think what they ultimately do with this character is sort of touching and heartbreaking and sweet as well. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And it's got singing in it, which I always like. Does, does Dan Stevens get pushed into a burning cabin in Eurovision Song Contest also? <laughs> I don't want to spoil it. Elliot. I mean, there is fire in the title, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to recommend a movie that just went up on Shudder recently called Host. Uh, it is the first of probably, I don't even know if it's the first, but I'm sure it's one of a slew of, uh, horror movies that's made on a micro budget during quarantine during in a post COVID time. Uh, and it is about a group of 20 somethings who are, uh, set up a zoom call to hang out with each other. And the theme for their zoom call is they decide to have a seance and it goes just about as well as you would imagine, uh, it's nice and short. It's under an hour. Uh, they do some fun stuff with uh, the limitations of a Zoom call. Uh, but the thing I think that makes it work is that the the, the stuff that happens before things get scary uh, is is engaging, and the stuff that happens after things get scary is also engaging. So it manages. I think the whole thing manages to work. So if you're looking for a short slice of horror that. Uh, is also topical, I guess. Uh, check out Host. Uh, before we move to the next recommendation, just very quickly, there is a not zero percent chance that I said the story of Ice and Fire Saga when giving the name. I, if I did, I was obviously thinking of Song of Ice and Fire. But there is just fire. There's no ice in Eurovision. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no, no Yingve, Yingve Malmsteen. Uh, Elliot, <laughs> you look like you're about to go. So why don't you go? Sure. Uh, this movie, The Call of the Wild, I th- said, oh, I'll recommend a movie with wild in the title. So I'm going to recommend Ah Wilderness. This is the 1930s version of the Eugene O'Neill play Ah Wilderness, starring Wallace Beery and Lionel Barrymore, and uh, one of my favorite actresses of the time, Aileen McMahon. Uh, and it was the script was adapted by Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich, who wrote The Thin Man, one of my favorite movies. And it's kind of a... Uh, Another kind of goes down easy movie in a lot of ways. It's a little slice of life story about a young man who has just graduated from high school in 1906. He's about to go to Yale and he has uh, to be kind of saved from himself and his thinking of himself as a sophisticated man of the world who understands more than regular people as he makes a couple of bad decisions and is pulled out of the kind of thing that nowadays would not have been a problem, but back in 1906 would have ruined his life beyond measure, namely going on a date with a woman that he shouldn't go on a date with and saying some things that might upset people. Uh, uh, I, I want to give a little factoid that is of no interest to anyone but me. I played said young man in the community theater production of Our Wilderness uh, when I was 17. Uh, this is a, yeah, thank you. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you could bring that personal perspective to it. Mm-hmm. Uh it's, it's very much a kind of picture of that mythical small town turn of the century America that didn't really exist, but which uh, is a, uh, uh, I don't know, something that a lot of uh, jerks uh, yearn for a return to. Uh, but it's kind of like if our town didn't have any of the metaphysical uh, talk of the cosmos in it. But I uh, really enjoyed it. It's just a charming little movie. Ah, uh, Wilderness. 
Jesse, what have you got? Well, I'm going to first recommend a book. Uh, Elliot Kalin, I went I went over to his house uh, the other day. We're quarantine buddies. And uh, mm-hmm. I was in a I was in a real mess. My life has been a really horrible mess lately. And I just I asked him if he could loan me a book uh, that would not make me sad at all and would be interesting the <laughs> whole time. Um, and he loaned me a book called The Devil's Candy, which is uh, about the making of the film of the Bonfire of the Vanities, Brian De Palma's film. And it is as absolutely engrossing and fascinating as a behind-the-scenes book could be. The movie was ultimately a huge debacle, both critically and financially, but like involved all of these brilliant, amazing people, uh, you know, Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis and uh, Steven Spielberg is in there. And it is a story, it is a book about, I think, the same thing that the Flophouse is often about, which is that making a movie is so, so complicated and has so many moving parts that even if you bring together a bunch of brilliant people, um, it is so easy to just get it wrong. And um, it's a very sympathetic book to everyone who is involved in the story, even the even the executives who are mostly just kind of doing executive meddling. Um, but like, I think I think the easy read of it is that it's the story of how executive meddling can ruin a film. But I think it really is the story of how a film can just go wrong. And it's uh, very sweet in a surprising way and and funny. And it like it shows you the fascinating stories behind every, you know, one of the most interesting subplots of the book is the assistant director who is a protege of De Palma's trying to make his name by getting a perfect shot of a Concorde landing with, uh, with the skyline in the background and the sun in exactly the right place. And he has to do like months of calculations by hand to figure out when the sun will be in the right place and so on and so forth. And he nails it. It's the perfect shot. He wins a hundred dollar bet with Brian De Palma. And there's, uh, it's mentioned in an article in American cinematographer magazine and all the credit goes to the cinematographer of the movie who was not present. Um, and it is, it is a, it's a really like, it's full of those fascinating stories of every kind of person, like people who worked on studio movies in the fifties and people who are like totally go, go nineties. And they're trying to make the ultimate eighties movie. It's a great book. Um, so thank you, Elliot, for that recommendation to me. And I pass it on to, I pass it on to America via the flop house. Um, I will also recommend a movie. Uh, it is probably my favorite movie. Um, and I'm always glad to recommend it, especially to comedy fans and practitioners of whom I know there are many who listen to the flop house. Um, uh, it's called a thousand clowns. Um, it was made in the early to mid 1960s as the 1960s were just starting to trend towards the countercultural 1960s where that idea was just being invented. Um, before Flower Children and so forth. It's based on a play that won, uh, I think it won, I believe it won a Pulitzer, um, it won some Tonys as well. And it's a story about uh, a comedy writer uh, who is probably 40-ish, um, who is unemployed. And he has quit writing on a children's show because it was beneath him. But with him lives his, uh, his young teenage nephew, a 13-year-old kid who 
for reasons that are explained in the film, goes by many different names. Uh, it turns out his, uh, his uncle just lets him pick a new name whenever he feels like it. Um, but uh, this kid is being investigated, this kid and his uncle are being investigated by Child Protective Services, uh, basically because the uncle is unemployed and the kid is often out of school and the kid is sort of brilliant and precocious, uh, but never shows up for anything. And they're worried that it is an unsafe environment for the kid. And the uncle is so resolutely anti-establishment and irreverent and amazing and charming uh, as only, you know, Jason Robards could be like it is a spectacular, hilarious, amazing performance. But you realize that the central conflict of this film is not this man against the establishment, uh, but this man against himself, that he has to he has to take responsibility for his own life. That just because he is anti-establishment and a comedy and a hilarious, charming man doesn't mean that he has to that he doesn't have to take responsibility for the effect that his choices have on others, especially ones that people that he loves. And it makes me cry every time, um, even though it is definitely a comedy um, and it's full of hilarious stuff, full of wonderful performances. Uh, Martin Balsam uh, was nominated for an Oscar for it. Um, he plays the guy's brother um and uh uh the and one and one and one thank you elliot yeah, yeah. one one best supporting actor and uh and there's a wonderful performance by the teacher from boy meets world um who's like uh mr feeney you know, yeah mr feeney william daniels yeah he's like thir- 35 mm-hmm. years old john adams um he plays the kind of hard ass uh or relatively stickler uh child protective services guy and it's it was actually written as the character is actually based on Gene Shepard, um, who is the legendary radio host who was also probably... I really thought you were going to say Gene Shepard. Yeah. <laughs> 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 who is the most, probably most famous for Christmas Story, right? But um, uh, the playwright and uh, Gene Shepard's relationship, they were very close friends, was ended by Gene Shepard because of this play, because it was essentially a critique of a guy who allowed his brilliance and charm and humor to get in the way of taking responsibility for his own life. Um, mm. Anyway, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, for many, many years, it was really hard to watch. It would come on Turner Classic Movies sometimes. There was a, a VHS that sold for $75 on eBay. Um, but it has just been re-released on Blu-ray, a beautiful new Blu-ray that's $19. And if you are the streaming type, um, I won't say what tube you can go to to watch it on in relatively high quality um because i think everybody involved should get paid um but uh yeah and in conclusion uh the kid the 13 year old um uh he's played by an actor named barry gordy who as a younger child was the voice of the song all i want for christmas is my two front teeth uh and as a man was the voice of one of the teenage mutant ninja turtles and in between Donatello yeah, and in between was the, the best thank you, one. and in between was uh, became a lawyer and president <laughs> of the Screen Actors Guild for the quite a long time one. so there you go A Thousand Clowns it's called there are no clowns involved uh, there are no clowns involved in the film but there is a part where he leans out the window of his tenement <laughs> apartment and says rich people everybody out on the street for volleyball <laughs> which is a lot of fun and, and no clowns were hurt during the making of the film because of I 
No, no, that's why they're. That's that. why they're not in the yeah. movie. They were all. Oh, oh. they didn't want to show yeah, it. They were all injured. That would have been like. A, the har- yeah, that would have basically made it a snuff film. I mean, they were they were injured being driven to set. They just put too many clowns in that car. It was one of those things, yeah. like uh, like that Rip Torn <laughs> thing, where Rip Torn beat the crap out of Norman Mailer or whatever. Oh wow! Oh, uh-huh. have you seen that footage? It is brutal. It is oh, terrifying. Oh, it's in the movie. Oh man, he hits oh. him in the head with a hammer from behind the yeah. back. There's one uh, that movie, Thousand Clowns. Uh, there's it's it's an amazing movie. And as I mentioned, there's a performance in it. He's only in one long scene. Gene Sachs plays Jason Robard's boss, who comes to win him back. And it is the most amazing scene of a man who is a who is a performance a person who is a monster, an emotional monster, and just wants people to like him, but is a bully and is terror. It's an amazing that that one scene. I think, always think is. Amazing. Yeah, he he plays it, like it the children's host that he used to work for, and what's beautiful about it is he is like a monster in that all he lives for is the approval of others. But it also like it's very sympathetic. Like it, you understand that this is a sad man, and that show business is sad. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I got a piece, so let's wrap it up, Jesse. Thank you for being with us. Is there stuff you would like to plug? I know you yourself have many shows. Yeah, I own a podcast network called MaximumFun.org uh, with a lot of great shows. <laughs> the only one I would steer clear of is called The Flop House. Oh, God. Oh, walked right into the, pre- the prestige, guys. <laughs> um, I... Uh, uh, I do. I do host and co-host three shows. I, I do an NPR arts and, cult, arts and culture interview show uh, called Bullseye, um, uh, of which I'm very proud. And if you like interviews with figures from arts and culture, including many uh, many filmmakers uh, and folks involved in film, uh, recently we've had uh, uh, Steve Buscemi was on the show. That was a wonderful interviewer, a, a wonderful interview, a great great actor and also a, a great director and Kelly Reichert who directed first cow. I mentioned first cow, first cow totally rules. What a great movie. Um, yeah, I keep put, I keep putting it off, but I need to, I just need to set aside some time. What's great it. about it is it's so totally not a homework movie. Like it's so fun and yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, well, it's, it's about the first cow to be elected president. Yeah. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And as, as you mentioned, Elliot, our mutual friend, Jordan Morris, uh, with whom I've been friends since we were, 19 and 18 and i was his ra in college uh and i do a show called jordan jesse go that is a silly bullshit comedy show uh of which uh uh which has existed now it's now in going into year 14 i think something like that um trumped us and uh year ahead and it's uh you know it's liked by people who like that sort of thing and then i also do a show with and we've all been guests. Uh, yeah, exactly. You've, you guys have all been guests. You're on the Max Fun Drive episode uh, this year, or at least Dan and Stu are. Um, so you can go listen mm-hmm. to an episode one, with one of the peaches. And I also do a show called Judge John Hodgman that's a comedy version of The People's Court with uh, the wise and hilarious John Hodgman as the judge. And, um, you know, in recent years, he's really backed off uh, the key element of his comic character, which was bullying Elliot. So... I've sort of had to take it on <laughs> in his stead. Um, yeah. Doing a bang I mean, on He does occasionally shift to me when he sees me, <laughs> but he's also gotten a lot nicer over, over the years. <laughs> That's weird. He's nothing but nice to yeah. me, guys. I know, because you're the cool yeah. one. Yeah, he wants you to like him. <laughs> uh, I won't like him. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> thank you to all of you for listening. Um, you know, go forth and spread the word however you may like. 
but uh, for the Flophouse, I've been Dan McCoy. Hey, thanks, Dirty D. McSee. I've been Stuart <laughs> Wellington. I'm Ilya K. No, I don't know. I want to say uh, thanks also to listeners. Thanks to Jordan Cowling for editing this mess into uh, professional ability. I'm Elliot Kalen. And Jesse, what's your name? Jesse Thor. See ya. On this episode, we discuss Call of the Wild. Technically, the Call of the Wild. But (laughs) why start being pedantic now? MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.